Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morowski, and today I'm here with Jen Pelly, the author of one of our 33 and a third books on the Raincoat's self-titled album. So uh, welcome, Jen. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, just to get started, um, you're a music journalist, so you write about a ton of different artists. Why did you decide to write a whole book about the Raincoat's? Um, it kind of was just always on my mind. Um, I interviewed the Raincoats in 2011 when they did an, a reissue of their second album, Outer Shape. And I remember coming out of the interview and thinking, uh, I would love to write a book about the Raincoats someday. They're this one of the most um, important bands in my life. They've had such a huge um, uh, influence on so much of like the most important music to me. Um, and it kind of blew my mind that there was no book about them. Um, so it was just an idea I had when I was 21 that I held on to. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and the 33 and a third series, um, the proposal process was so, like, clearly outlined and accessible mm -hmm. that it seemed like a way to write a book about the raincoats. And that was kind of, like, that was kind of what I was after, is writing a book about the raincoats. <laughs> Were there other considerations besides the raincoats? Um, well, yeah, I, I thought, like, what, what would I have liked to write a 33 and a third on, if not the raincoats, and one record that um, I always think of is World of Echo by Arthur Russell. Nice. Um, which I think would be a very difficult record to write a book about. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of maybe if, if I were to ever <laughs> um, write another book about an album. Hmm. Maybe World of Echo, but and they were label mates. Both of those records came out on Rough Trade. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, we'll get into Rough Trade. Yeah. But, um, you open the book with a line: "Mystery is costly." Why do you decide to open the book and contextualize the band this way? Yeah. Well, I thought about this a lot. Like, where's the line between like mystery on the one hand, and then things like people just being sidelined on the other hand? Um, and like erasure um and i feel like part of the part of the reason i gravitated towards um writing a book about the raincoats was this element of mystery like i knew that i related to the raincoats record um so strongly and it, mm -hmm. it felt like uh i felt really reflected in it but i didn't completely understand and that kind of like um breach in understanding was like fascinating to me i was like i can relate to this but i don't completely understand why and I wanted to understand why um and I think maybe uh I also thought like maybe if I can understand why I'm so obsessed with this Raincoats record maybe I would understand something about myself too um yeah so that kind of attracted me to it but but yeah I do think that there's this idea um of kind of romanticizing romanticizing music that seems mysterious mm. but then it also felt like this real um like something had been lost I was like why don't I know who these people are or why, why don't I know much about them um they created this record that is so important um and so it just seemed uh it was like a priority for me to kind of like figure out who they were 
and also so many people who I spoke with who were huge fans of the raincoats, like Calvin Johnson and Carrie Brownstein and um, all these people from the um, Olympia music scene also told me that at the time they didn't know anything about the raincoats. And I guess, you know, it's a different time. You couldn't just email someone and yeah. send them questions but, um, and phone calls. International phone calls were expensive. I also learned. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. This might be a hard question to answer, but do you feel through the process of writing the book that you did understand something deeper about yourself? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I feel... Uh, I, I definitely feel like the instinct uh of oh I, I i feel part of myself in this record was very like validated by the process of working on it um and i think i understood a lot of why like like why do i like art that kind of celebrates things that are wrong like mm. like mistakes and um scrappiness and like rawness uh and uh like vulnerability i think <laughs> i like kind of learn something about myself by trying to like investigate why those things matter to me. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I talk in the book about this idea of raincoats logic um, <laughs> that I kind of realized is very useful. Um, just when thinking about like any, uh, any kind of like conundrum mm. in your life, like on fairy tale in the supermarket, which uh is now the first song on the record. It actually wasn't included on the record when it was originally released in 1979. Um, there's this lyric, uh, no one teaches you how to live, which I just think is this really beautiful lyric. And it's so true. Um, people are making things up as they go along in life um, constantly. And so in a way, it's kind of like, a, um, it's like a DIY mantra or something. Like no one teaches you how to do it. You just do it yourself. DIY, whatever. But it, it also is really useful just in general. Like, people are constantly faced with situations and dilemmas that they can't figure out and just have to improvise. Um, I'm not sure how I got on this tangent, but, but it's, uh, it, it just, Raincoat's logic has become like such a strong concept to me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You have this great line. It's one of uh, the best in the book for me is you say that shakiness begets life or something like that. And I was just like, damn, that, that, that really spoke to me as well. It's and, so true. Right. Like yeah. life is messy and yeah. being around other people that allow you to have the space to explore what that means. Is yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, crucial. I just, yeah, it was, it was that I feel like that line I wrote at a time when I was really applying raincoats logic in a really, um, maybe in a really way that was felt very useful, but I was def I was like, just kind of, you know, dealing with the situation where I didn't know what was going on. I was so confused and like, it was more of like a personal life thing. And, and one of my friends was like, yeah, um, but you need moments like that in your life. And I was like, oh, everyone needs moments of shakiness. It's totally true. Like you literally can't move forward without scenarios like that. And it just kind of made me hear the shakiness of the raincoats in a different way. Mm. What was it like actually interviewing them? What was your research process? It was so fun. I kind of like didn't know what to expect at all. Um, 
I didn't know them like before I pitched the book or anything. Um, I had interviewed them once and I'd seen them play a couple of times, but um, I just kind of reached out to them because I going into it, my, my ideal scenario would be to like interview them um, thoroughly do like a ton of research. I didn't like necessarily want to write like a first person account of getting into the raincoats or anything. Right. <laughs> I wanted it to be kind of like just, you know, fact-based history <laughs> and criticism. Um, so I, it was a priority for me to interview them if I could. And so in 2014, which is when I started working on the book, I, emailed them and uh <clears throat> I decided to go to London uh and interview them in person mm-hmm. which I didn't like have to do but I just figured it would be better and yeah it creates rapport a right? great excuse to go to London exactly. and um <laughs> and so I went to London and interviewed them uh I interviewed Anna and Gina and so Anna the guitarist and singer Gina bass player and singer uh Shirley who uh has been um their manager and, and collaborator um since uh the late 70s and also the violin player Vicky Aspinall mm-hmm. I interviewed all of them when I was in London and going going to London and interviewing them in person had like that um kind of uh added benefit of um uh, when I, I went to their house and, and interviewed them, Anna and Shirley's house, and they had this archive of materials they had kind of saved uh, mm-hmm. and collected over the years. Like they had basically just been creating their own raincoats archive that they keep at their house. Um, and they told me that I could um, use it for the book, which was incredible um, and definitely um, it wouldn't have been the same book without having access to that. Um, it was I just sat at their kitchen table and, and it was like stuff that had never been scanned before, like, um, interviews and reviews from the, um, music newspapers from the late seventies and like pages that felt like they like could have maybe might've like crumbled in my hands or something. (laughs) Um, and just all of this incredible ephemera. Um, and they also had videos that they gave me access to. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's all this material that like should be in, a library or a museum somewhere um and I was so I felt so lucky to get to um read all of that and mm. you know it was a pretty like um wild process like trying to make sense of all of it because the um the press's uh like attitude towards the raincoats in the late 70s was so um horrifying like, <laughs> well <laughs> sometimes it was horrifying but it was just kind of like really either like very like hyperbolic uh praise or like the most like scathing like sexist <laughs> um bullshit like so it was really like too extreme the opinions were all very extreme mm. um there weren't many like level-headed like even-handed pieces um and of course I, I i write this in the book but of course like one of the few kind of even-handed reviews that is like it's not for everyone but it's great what they're doing is <laughs> from Sarib, which is um was this um british feminist magazine mm-hmm. um 
but but talking with them was so incredible i really got the sense that they were like ready to tell their story and like i mean they never stopped doing interviews or anything but they 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 were enthusiastic about it which i feel so lucky for that for and it almost gave your book this kind of zini vibe to have <laughs> all these archives in it cool which... yeah it was I, I thought getting into all that stuff was so fun and um learning about uh like, I didn't know that the Raincoats actually published, like, their own zine in 1980. Mm. Um, that was really cool um, to come across. And, you know, it was just this moment where I was, like, one of my favorite bands of all time published this zine in 1980 where they, ex- like, explain what all the songs are about, <laughs> basically. And I didn't know it existed. Um, so stuff like that, I was kind of like, wow, it's so shocking to me that um, – their history has been kind of um, not lost, but um, mm. just surprised me. I kept being surprised throughout the process by stuff that had kind of been not necessarily buried, but not documented in the way it should have been documented. Mm. Well, it's good that they were documenting it. Yeah, it's almost like yeah. they anticipated that somebody would realize that, you know, they need this or they should, they deserve this kind of recognition. And that somebody would write a book about them eventually. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- along the way, they also, they had had been working on a documentary about themselves for mm. many years that I believe is still in, like, in process. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it, it is interesting, like, a band that is so kind of, like, self-directed mm. um, to understand, like, like we need to document what we're doing and, and keep keep things and archive it um, because no one else is going to. Um, right. Especially in the context of history. Like, yeah, I mean, this whole, I, I guess Toby Vale of Bikini Kill did the same sort of thing, knowing that yeah they would not necessarily be treated by mainstream media with the respect that they deserve. Yeah, so they need to yeah. like, write the history themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of taking, taking like the initiative to like, create your own culture and, and make sure that it's documented. Like I really, um, something Toby told me was that when Bikini Kill was playing shows, they would like write the names of bands, uh, like other, other, other women, um, punk bands, they would like write the names down on like napkins mm-hmm. and like on people's arms or something. Um, just to like spread awareness of like this history that was like so underdocumented that was cool to learn about yeah i remember reading that in your book i was like oh man pre pre pre-social media just writing things on people's arms i I killed to have been alive at a time when bikini kill was playing and the raincoats frankly but um they're both playing now i wait where oh (laughs) bikini kills playing oh yeah 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 well bikini kill they reunited this year um i didn't know that i'm clearly not in the loop but yeah well yeah it was so um well cool because now i get to tell the story (laughs) but but, uh there was um there was an event that we did uh when when the when the raincoats book came out in 2017 um we did a bunch of events at the kitchen in manhattan um which is this kind of like legendary avant-garde art space um arthur russell was once the music director there um kind of like a um anyway the raincoats have this history with the kitchen because in the 80s they recorded a live album there called the kitchen tapes and so 
the kitchen had told them if you ever want to do something here there's like an open invitation at least that's my understanding of it Mm -hmm. and so um uh when I was getting ready to release the book um they said hey like do you want to do something at the kitchen maybe you can like interview Anna and Gina and so we did these this like these these three events at the kitchen in November 2017 that were so special, just like one of the best weekends of my life. Um, and uh, there were two nights where it was more or less like me interviewing them on stage and we showed um, films that Anna and Gina had made when they were in art school that were relevant to the time period. Mm -hmm. And Anna and Gina also uh, exhibited some of their visual art outside. Um, But then on the third night, um, Shirley from the Raincoats kind of put together this event called the Raincoats and Friends, which uh, she, she really kind of, it was her vision (laughs) or maybe the Raincoats vision too. They, they could, so I was just going to read at it and do a I do a Q&A that night? I don't remember. But I read at it and um, other people read and there were performances and mm. they had invited all of these people to um, to come perform and they invited Toby Vale to come play a song. And they also invited Kathleen Hanna, but I think she had said like she couldn't do it or something. Mm. So like, so I knew that Toby was going to be there and I knew that Kathy Wilcox from Bikini Kill was going to be there. But I didn't know Kathleen was going to be there. And then Kathleen showed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like right before doors open, like a uh, vice cooler who was the drummer of the Raincoats was like, "Hey, I have to tell you something." Like three members of Bikini Killer here, and I was like, "Oh, Billy Karen came. That's so crazy. Who used to be the guitarist?" <laughs> yeah. And he was like, "No, it's Kathleen." And I was like, "What?" I would have had a panic and, attack. <laughs> and I was like, "What?" And slowly, like I think everyone started realizing, like. I think Bikini Kill are going to, like, play. And they hadn't played in, since 1997. Um, so, yeah, then they played a song. Uh, the song for Tammy Ray. And uh, it was so wild. I mean, I was just kind of, like, in shock. But, um, you know, it was so beautiful because I think it was just the uh, Bikini Kill, members of Bikini Kill wanted to do something to kind of express, like, their respect for the raincoats. Mm-hmm. And, um and like how much um, the raincoats mean to them, uh, and so that was beautiful. And in January, um, when Bikini Kill announced that they were doing like a full blown reunion, or you know, playing a bunch of sh- of their own shows, uh, which was very exciting. Um, I've I've interviewed um, I interviewed them. Uh, I interviewed Toby Vale and she told me like um, they were inspired by the fact that the raincoats have continued to play mm-hmm. and kind of um, that they took, they were inspired by the raincoats to continue their band. And I'm sure there were many other factors too, but um, that was, it was, it was cool to me. Like it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think the raincoats have kind of at this point fostered this really interesting kind of like intergenerational um, conversation about music, mm. the bands that they play with when they play now and the people who have been inspired by them and who, you know, especially because when the, when the raincoats started playing in the nineties, it was kind of inspired by 
the interest in their music from the right girl generation and Nirvana and stuff. So it's just interesting to think about how everything is connected. <laughs> right. And they're yeah. so symbiotic, like that connection yeah. that you draw in the book that the raincoats inspired the riot girl movement, but in tow, the riot girl movement sort of revitalized the raincoats yeah. legacy and brought it over to the States. Yeah. It's beautiful to think of how everything is connected. <laughs> right. And on like a wider level, because all of those bands are so political, so, uh, so intentional in their music and, and, and driven by feminism. Like, I don't know. I think it's also just like international solidarity in that way mm-hmm. for leftist politics at large. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a cool way of articulating it for sure. Um, one thing that you do a lot in your book is you describe the personal histories of each of the band members. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to flesh that out? And, and why do you think it ultimately shapes the raincoats as a band? Um, well, it kind of like goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which was kind of wanting, wanting to like demystify them a little bit as people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, also like there's so many books about the history of punk, like we know who all those men are. Like, I don't have to even name them. Like we know who they are. <laughs> they all have like memoirs and like multiple histories and you can learn like every detail of like their lives. Um, so I just kind of, it was fascinating to me to kind of like figure out who they who they are and where they were coming from um and I I didn't know um that uh like like I knew that Anna was from Portugal and I knew that Palmolive the drummer was from Spain but it kind of I didn't know like how much they um brought with them from those places I didn't realize that um that Anna was like growing up in Portugal and it was still um, like a fascist country. Mm. I didn't know that um, part of the reason Palm Olive wanted to leave Spain and come to London was to have like a freer, less oppressive existence. Um, mm. They both talked to me how like growing up um, in fascist countries made them want to um, live uh, and work in a democratic way. Like, Mm. Pamela told me like when she started a band uh, she started the slits um that democracy was non-negotiable and she also talked to me a lot because she kind of um Pamela was involved with the scene around the sex pistols and the clash before she joined the raincoats and she uh was like really turned off by a lot of it because mm. they had these kind of like hierarchies in their bands where those both of those bands had these like managers that were like dictating um things to them and she was like i didn't leave this oppressive place to come do this like <laughs> to be told what to do yet again yeah. um so for her you know she made it very clear to me that um not only did she want to be in a band where everyone's voices were heard but um when she played i think you would hear that in the way she plays too like mm. she's not dictating a beat when she plays her playing is more atmospheric and kind of like painting or something um it's just her expressing herself it's so joyful really joyful and there's these beautiful clips of her playing um in with the raincoats where she just has this like enormous smile on her face it's so fun to watch (laughs) um palmol is such a special person i know i mean i um when you showed me those or when you uh, showed those archival videos of their old concerts, just Mm -hmm. seeing her like 
mouth open, freaking out on the drums. Yeah, it was just, yeah, yeah. it was uh, exuberant. I don't yeah, know. I it's felt... really inspiring. Um, it's like dancing or something. Um, and also just not self-serious. I feel like it's, oh. it makes music and punk music specifically like less intimidating to just see these women like rock out on instruments without being too concerned with the um I don't know with the mechanics of the music yeah I mean something she said it's something she said to me like when I was first interviewing her interviewing her was like think about it I did not know how to play the drums but she kind of like reiterated that and she was like I didn't know how to play um so I was just making it up and she was kind of like just exploring she's like I was just exploring the drums and trying to like figure out what sounded good and was fun um and she also um like growing up in spain like didn't grow up like with a lot of like rock and roll um she was listening to like flamenco and like spanish Mm -hmm. folk music and and stuff like that um so she just didn't have this kind of like she was and something else she said to me was like i wasn't trying to be different i was different um and I think you can hear all of that when she plays. Absolutely. Um, and, and you also write about, I mean, it was it was them. It was the, the democratization of their band. But I think they also were attached to this really amazing label, Rough Trade, mm-hmm. which was super Marxist and kind of gave them the artistic liberty to do whatever they want. Yeah, I've ha- I had so much fun learning about and writing about the history of Rough Trade because... I think that the early history of Rough Trade is so fascinating. Like, I think there's, um, like, the label, like, um, so much stuff happens later on that is complicated. Um, but uh, at the very beginning, it was um, so inspiring. Um, there, Jeff Travis um, is so smart, and I was really grateful to get to talk to him a couple of times for this. But there's, I think there's a lot to learn, too, from the idea like you know something that was really important to to jeff and rough trade was the idea of like taking back the means of production <laughs> something that he said that i quote in the book is like not letting the marketplace like dictate like what their the music that they released would sound like mm-hmm. um and they're all kind of like um it's it, i think they're just just there are so many important reminders that i feel like the early history of rough trade like has to offer <laughs> especially now like living through this like time where um like the era of streaming and, and thinking about distribution you know more or less the way music is distributed and how that affects um the whole context of it um it seems like uh the right time to think about um this similar conversation that was happening like 50, 40 years ago. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think a message that you drive home throughout the book is that they were DIY and that was uh, fundamental to their, their sound. I mean, how, I mean, what do you feel the state of DIY music is today? How do you think it affects the musical landscape? Um, It's hard to speak to like the entire state of DIY because there's just, there's so many different underground music scenes um, mm. that exist concurrently around the world. Uh, and I'm definitely not aware of all of them, which is sick. Um, but I mean, I've had so many, personally, I've had so many beautiful ex- 
music experiences in a DIY context, even just like in the past few months. <laughs> um, so from my perspective, I, I, you know, there's always interesting stuff happening on an underground level, but I do think that uh, there's, you know, a band like the Raincoats, something that was interesting to me to explore in the book was how the, you know, the entire context of their lives, like, allowed the space for them to make the, the music that they made, which includes the fact that some of them were living in squats and didn't pay rent. And, mm. you know, they worked sometimes, but for the most part, they had the time and the space to really, like, compose this music and practice it. So it was, like, simple, simple but it was, um, it was, they did rehearse, you know? Mm. Um, and... And they had the time and the space to kind of like um, experiment, which is not the case as much <laughs> um, today. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are places you can move to where living is not as expensive and as New York time. <laughs> yeah. Um, or London, frankly. Or London or California or wherever. These places that used to be easier to kind of be an artisan major cities in general it's very difficult yeah I mean it's you know especially like I, I guess I could speak most being in New York I can speak to New York but there was a, a venue in New York called the Silent Barn that shut oh, down yeah. last I, year I played at Silent Barn oh, last cool. when I was in high school yeah sorry <laughs> um I was fairly involved and um in booking things and performing and kind of in I guess underground music in New York in general for the mm -hmm. past like decade um and there's always interesting stuff happening but when Silent Barn closed last year it really felt like one of the last <laughs> spaces that really felt kind of like uh conducive to the types of type of like experimentation that I'm talking about um mm. uh but at the same time like I you know in like I guess it was in September or October. I saw a show at at a bar called Windjammer that was like um, Ani and Lily from this band called Talberta, who mm. I'm very obsessed with, um, <laughs> and who I think also kind of like bear out the influence of the Raincoats in interesting ways. Um, and some other bands played that show, like my sister's band Privacy Issues and my friend's band Preening, and um, this band called The Cradle um, from New York and. You know, it's like see, seeing that show is so incredible and so inspiring. So <laughs> seeing a show like that, you, I'd think like, ah, oh, music is so great in New York right now. Like, there's no problems. Everything's, you know, <laughs> um, but, but, uh, oh God, like, it's a very complicated conversation around music venues and gentrification and yeah, would require <laughs> probably another podcast to get into, but, um. I don't know if, if there's interesting DIY scenes out there somewhere, email me and tell me. <laughs> I want to know. Totally. I know there are. Um, I was also inspired to start like a kind of like performance project while I was working on the Raincoats book. Oh yeah. Which is another, um, another subject, but, um, I feel like through that I've, uh, I went on a tour in November and played DIY venues in Atlanta and Nashville. And um, what was the performance project? Uh, 
it's called Abandon, and it's me and my sister and our friend Steven. Um, it's it's fairly like offline, which mm-hmm. I love. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, when I was working on the book, I kept thinking like, um, I was writing about um, these people who were Anna and Gina who were performing for the first time. And it's really hard. I mean, I think it would be kind of impossible to write a book about the raincoats and not be inspired to start a band or a project. Um, like, yeah. I don't, I'm not really sure, like, if that would be possible. <laughs> um, so in a, in a way, I feel like it's a testament to the power of, like, their music and their story that I felt compelled to start a project with my, a creative project with my friends while I was working on it. And, uh, yeah, it would, I was really curious about like what, like I write a lot about what it feels like to be at the beginning of something, Mm. the beginning of discovering yourself as an artist. And I really wanted to as almost as like an experiment, uh, understand what that felt like. And because of the existence of silent barn. And I think because of my proximity to all of this information about the raincoats, mm. it was almost inevitable, I think. <laughs> that you started a project. Yeah, yeah. But it felt like it really informed the way I was thinking about their music, too, um, a little bit. And so I was grateful for that. Yeah, I love thinking about that. I mean, I, I thought about that as I was reading along, that it must have felt like a, sort of a meta experience for you writing this and getting inspired to write your own music, but also your whole experience writing a 33 and a third. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Like, no one teaches you how to live. And I had never written a book before. I mean, I had written, done a lot of like long form journalism, but um, I had never written a book before. And I was 24 when I started working on it. Um, so I had a lot to learn <laughs> in some sense. I mean, I, w- I was ready to do it, but, um, with writing a book, it's kind of like, you know, especially writing a history book. Um, I'm not sure if anything could really prepare you for the kind of like t- kind of undertaking that is, um, when you start doing it for the first time. <laughs> it all kind of reminds me um this other part in the book where you say that the whole concept of the raincoats was an act of resistance. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, I think like the raincoats um are like a threat to the status quo of music. Mm-hmm. Um Toby Vale said something similar to to that similar to that to me when I was talking to her talking with her about the raincoats earlier in the year. And it felt like a really beautiful, like succinct um, way of expressing why the wrinkles are an act of resistance. But um, you know, they have they have specific songs that are more political. But but I really do think it's kind of um, the totality of like the wrinkles as a band um, that feels like an act of resistance because they um, they kind of just they allowed their art to be a reflection of who they were. Um, and it's not polished and there's a lot of freedom in that, but yeah, I think, I think it really is the kind of, just the kind of the, the kind of allowance of imperfection. I, I, I think is to me, what makes it an act of resistance because it's so um, like perfection in general is this kind of, uh, disease or something. Mm. It, it literally is disease. Um, the idea of perfection and especially the way that it affects young women. So I think 
creating art and reflecting yourselves in a way that is scrappy and kind of messy and um you know they had to they had to they had to like make mistakes in order to go somewhere in order to like move forward and I think that's a really valuable lesson like you have to make mistakes in order to go somewhere you haven't been before probably um and I think in general like um there is this like cultural myth that (laughs) at least in mainstream culture that people don't make mistakes yeah I mean I think especially with women I think the I don't know how do I articulate this just I think there's obviously an insane amount of pressure to be perfect at all moments Mm -hmm. and we don't ever venerate failure and it's in the things that we learn in those failures I I don't think especially Mm -hmm. as women like we resist the idea Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah for sure and it's interesting because I feel like this it like uh like when I was saying earlier about like things that I feel like I was like, maybe if I could figure out why the raincoats, I'm so, I gravitate so intensely towards it. Maybe I would like learn something about myself. And I think there is so much to learn from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause it's interesting. They don't, they're not explicitly political in a lot of their songs. They are yeah. an off duty. Like when yeah, they're talking to, yeah, like to, when they're talking about like a specific political instance and yet mm-hmm. they are so deeply political. I mean, yeah. Um, with songs like Lola, for instance, you go into that a bit into the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, they they do a cover of Lola where they don't um, they don't change like any of the pronouns um, in the song. Uh, so there are lines where you know it's three women singing about how they've never kissed a woman before um and there are so many people who I've spoken to who who told me like hearing hearing a punk song of girls talking about kissing other girls just was like very like affirming and liberating for them like I talked to Patty Schemmel about that from Hole Mm. and I talked to um Rachel Ags from the band Shopping about Mm. that and yeah it's I feel like that um song in particular like um is like the best known raincoat song we're recording probably um because it's has like more of a beat to it or something right um but i think that they're that's like the best version of that song by far oh i completely <laughs> agree with you i think that the original i think you said this too is like vaguely transphobic or you know it could be interpreted that way yeah yeah and the fact that they abstract it this way does feel more intimate it feels like yeah I don't know there is something just so mm-hmm. revelatory I, I growing up listening to this about girls kissing girls and yeah. there not being an issue with changing the pronouns was really important to yeah me personally yeah I agree I think that I just I just like how they complicate it even more I think it kind of there's just an extra layer of freedom or something there through that yeah I was so glad that I got to interview Rachel Axe for this book oh yeah One of my favorite musicians why um, were you so happy well, I think Rachel is like, well, she's someone who I know has been very inspired by the Raincoats throughout her musical life. And um, Shopping is one of my favorite current bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I liked, I really liked the idea of interview. She's uh, my age, um, like 30. Uh, and I liked the idea of interviewing um, someone who was kind of from a different generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, her music is so, like, 
I think, kind of, like, free and nonlinear in a similar way. Mm. Sometimes when she plays, because she always, like, has this huge smile on her face when she performs. That reminds me of Paul Mullins a little bit, <laughs> um, even though she's a guitarist. Like, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the Raincoats legacy, because the record just turned 40. Mm. Um, and I sort of feel like the their story to me feels like so there's so much like potential like um like there's so much creative energy in their story like just the fact that they composed songs like with no rules but like they Mm. really composed songs with no rules like um people say that but like you listen to their songs and um like a song like no looking is just kind of operates by its own logic it's like a story and then they're shouting and it's a story again and they're shouting and it kind of just gets the speeds up and slows down like um I think it's really kind of liberating to listen to the record and kind of imagine or remember that like a song can be anything you want a song to be um and I remember I was I look at Goodreads sometimes because like I can't help it like seeing like people who read the book and like what else they're reading uh-huh. um and I saw someone uh had just read it and was also reading The Artist's Way and I was like oh that makes so much sense because I feel like even though it's a book about a band from most of it takes place in the late 70s in the UK like it does it really does feel like their story um, could be inspiring and like invigorating to just artists in general. And it's Mm. been cool to see the book resonate with people in that way. Like I remember uh, short, like kind of shortly after it came out, this visual artist uh, posted about it on Instagram. And I think it said like some of the best books about art are books about music or something <laughs> and I and uh and I remember thinking oh yeah like I don't think you really need to I mean I I, I would hope that people are familiar with their music but I don't really think you right. need to be familiar with their music to like be inspired by what they did and what they continue to do I had a friend who was in art school who read the book and she was like oh, I've been telling everyone in art school to like buy this book <laughs> because it, it I do think that their story kind of were the way that they operated at least I mean it, it unlocked something for me where I was like anything could be like like you really can do whatever you want there really are no rules no um, one tells you how to live yeah no totally um that applies to composing songs or having the um having the confidence to compose a song but then also just like what you put into a song too or a piece of art or anything. Um, that's something that I remember uh, Anna told me that I, while I was interviewing her, and I think it's in the book that, uh, or maybe actually it's something she writes in the Raincoats booklet, the little mm-hmm. zine, is that the Raincoats were a group of people who had like just enough confidence to do what they were doing. Like not much confidence, but like just enough, uh, which is so inspiring. Sometimes I feel like it's more it's more inspiring to hear people working when they have like just enough confidence rather than like a ton of confidence. Like obviously it's like, it's powerful when someone is very like brash and bold Mm -hmm. and like just kind of like, like, uh, uh, not hindered by anything. But, but I also think it's inspiring to see people, um, who 
maybe almost couldn't do what they're doing. <laughs> like just had like that kind of just barely crossed the line. Um, I feel like that's inspiring in a whole different way. Totally. I think that resonates. I think that's why it resonates yeah. with so many people, whether they like this mm-hmm. kind of music or not, yeah. right? Because yeah. there's something so human about that vulnerability of like not even being that good or just good enough to do what you want to do. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like there's this like reach in their music that I think, I mean, it, it's kind of like the, sh- the shakiness, but it's like, I think you could you can hear and like feel like the reach um, of them trying to do something that like maybe they don't know they can do or figuring out if they can do it in real time that is so beautiful to me and like poetic yeah it sort of reminds me there's this one of the last lines in the book is so beautiful to me the the vibe of the raincoats you said it's a peculiar euphoria it's a miracle it's the rare sound of women destroying isolation together yeah it's so true (laughs) like when I read that I was like yeah yeah in their failure, they felt less alone. They were destroyed because we're forced to be islands onto ourselves so often, especially like in a world of social media. It's so true. Yeah. And I think, you know, like the, like talking about the the power of togetherness um, is easy, but like when you can feel the power of togetherness and solidarity and experience it, it's just like, unlike anything else <laughs> it really is like um like I think the end of the record like no looking when you hear them all like shouting together mm. which is like my favorite sound in the world basically is like women shouting, women shouting. <laughs> um, me too <laughs> um yeah and it's definitely um you know writing a book is a very isolating process um mm. you spend all this time alone so it was very like it was comforting to have um this like reminder while I was working on it too did you do some of your own shouting afterwards um did I uh no but I would (laughs) it's funny the the project that that I started inspired by the process of the raincoats was is um kind of spoken word Uh, I like to shout at karaoke (laughs) shouting um figuratively figuratively shouting yeah yeah lots of figurative shouting (laughs) (laughs) well um I think that's really all we have time for but I hope that I don't know by us talking and giving the raincoats the recognition that they deserve Mm -hmm. that we've uh you know destroyed isolation even further (laughs) yes here we are destroying isolation isolation (laughs) together (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show yeah. um for everybody listening you can get jen's book on bloomsbury's website on 33 and a third it's a uh, the raincoats the raincoats their self-titled album thank you so much thank you